If you're enjoying this show, you might also like some of the other podcasts on Racecar Radio. For instance, try The Newberry Report, two New York improv actresses discussing children's books, specifically every book that's won the Newberry Medal year by year and decade by decade. It's smart, silly, engaging, and touching, and we promise it's your new favorite book club. Listen and subscribe now at racecarradio.com. Welcome to London's New York. In today's episode, Dan and I are exploring a place that's about as far off the beaten path as you can be and still technically be in Manhattan. A separate island, actually. Roosevelt Island. A little strip of land just two miles long and about 800 feet wide at its widest, sitting in the East River just underneath the Queensboro Bridge. It's a place where you kind of feel neither here nor there, in between Midtown and Queens, and not really in either one. Keep going. Keep walking. And it's that separateness that's always defined this little island. For many decades, it was used as a kind of medical penal colony, a place to put the city's undesirables. And you can still see a little of that past in the preserved ruins of an old hospital, left in place as a kind of historical marker. We're now walking towards the ruins of a typhoid hospital built here in the mid-19th century. Uh, It's got this classic sort of ruined manor house look. The walls are covered in ivy. All the rooms inside have rotted and fallen away so that just the facade is standing up. Um, And this was the sort of Victorian face of the poorhouse for many people. It was forbidding, it was strict. Um, You got what you were told. You may not have any more porridge. Uh, It had a workhouse, a penitentiary, a lunatic asylum, a city hospital, and a city home. I love that that trio. It's like if you're poor, crazy, or sick. Workhouse, penitentiary, asylum, city hospital. And city home. So if you're old, if you're sick, if you're crazy, or if you're poor, you know, or if you're a criminal, all these groups are lumped together as, you know, the the undesirable of the city, and they have to be cast out. And that was the sort of function of many institutions of health or welfare, basically, to isolate the poor and to uh, emphasize their dependence and their unsalvageability. Um, And it's a very 19th century way of viewing the poor or the sick. So the state was quite active in 19th century America in terms of acting like a police power. It was putting down Native Americans, it was putting down slave revolts, it was protecting the right of property for at least white people, Um, it was protecting the rights of corporations, it was also giving Uh, enormous kinds of corporate welfare to railroads and to certain private industries. It was protecting them in the form of tariff. It just wasn't protecting ordinary people. And that was the great solution or the great contribution of 20th century social liberalism to think about the state, uh, not just in terms of negative liberty, but in terms of positive liberty. 
it's a heck of a phrase, negative liberty. What, is, what does that mean? Well, this is what we, we talked about this under the Bernstein thing. Basically, the classical liberalism is the idea that liberty is just being protected from outside interference. As long as you are not being prohibited from doing something, you are free. That's one idea of freedom, the idea that you are freed from outside constraints. But for a 20th century liberal, the social liberal version, if you're poor, you're still at the mercy. You're constrained by things like economic deprivation. You're constrained by racism. You're constrained by external things. So positive liberalism is the idea that you should be able to do certain things in real terms and not just theoretically be able to just because no one's telling you you can't. And it's interesting that a hundred years later, this same island was home to a completely different kind of social welfare experiment. Uh, beginning in the late 60s, there were plans to redevelop the island into a middle-class community. So state action providing for the middle class, trying to create a more economically integrated city rather than just of the very rich and the very poor. Um, and, you know, we could go into all the sort of politics of that why just for these people what does it mean to have an island just for the middle class rather than for other groups but in any event it represented this other way of seeing the government as providing for a broader swath of people and it's no accident that part of this grand plan for blackwell's island was renaming it for the great hero of social reform in the u.s franklin roosevelt my friends I want to talk to you today very simply about government. I am not going to refer to parties at all, but I am going to refer to some of the fundamentals that antedate parties, antedate republics and empires, fundamentals that are as old as mankind itself. They are fundamentals that have been expressed in philosophers for I don't know how many thousands of years in every part of the world. And today, in our boasted modern civilization, we are facing just exactly the same problem, just exactly the same conflict between two schools of philosophy that they faced in the earliest days of America, and indeed the earliest days of the world. One of them, one of these old philosophies, is the philosophy of those who would let things alone. And the other is the philosophy that strives for something new, Something that the human race has never attained yet, but something that I believe the human race can attain and will attain. Social justice through social action. And ever since they changed the name of Blackwell's Island to Roosevelt Island, there was a thought that it ought to have some kind of public memorial to Roosevelt and his life. But it took a remarkably long time to build one. The architect Louis Kahn drew up the plans for a memorial park in Roosevelt's honor back in the early 70s, but those plans sat around unused for almost 50 years. The idea was revived after an exhibition of Kahn's work at the Cooper Union in the early 2000s, and ground was finally broken using Kahn's original plans in 2010. And it's actually this park, the Four Freedoms Park, which officially opened in 2012, that we really came here to see. It's quite big, taking up about the southernmost 20% or so of the island, and really quite unlike any other public space in New York. Wow. Yeah. 
So we stand up on the, uh, go up the stairs, and there's this sort of triangular uh, swath of grass flanked by these rows of trees. And it's like something you'd find in D.C., but it's not oppressive. Instead, it's a sense of you're in an enclosed space, and as it narrows towards the front of the island, there's almost a sense of intimacy without sacrificing a sense of space and openness. You know, so we're moving from this Victorian crumbling, you know, this sort of dark model of philanthropy and charity in the past, vertical and ruinous, and now we're moving ahead, and there's just this whole new composition ahead. These bright, white, marble, stone piles ahead of us, expertly carved in these bold shapes, these diagonals. It's a sort of staircase, and it's topped by a little ring of trees, so we're past this sort of older model, and we're in this monumental space, and that's the key word, monument. It's useful to contrast this to the FDR monument in D.C. In D.C., um, there, it's a whole bunch of different rooms, each one illustrating a different aspect of uh, FDR's life. Here's FDR signing Social Security. Here's the poor people who are grateful to FDR. Here's FDR in a wheelchair, and it's all very obvious. But here, the what makes FDR great, or what his ideas, you know, how the how the greatness is represented, has nothing to do with any explicit message, at least so far. But it's in the kind of contrast that the design of this space conveys to the rest of the city. You already feel like, okay, there's a different kind of personality at work here. He represents something different, but perhaps complementary to what the rest of the city is. The, the amazing thing, you know, as a New Yorker, being in this space in the city is how open it is and how big it is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing, there's no comparable sort of huge... I mean, there's nothing's happened. We've just walked through... It's lovely, but we've walked through this empty space, and there's just grass and trees, and it's just—I mean, it's the amount of space that anywhere else in the city would have three skyscrapers, six banks, you know, two a little strip of trees, and and you know, I mean, it's just empty and open. Yeah, if this so feels so unlike other spaces in New York, in that it's really unpractical. New York's a very practical city, right? right. Everything has a use, and this giant empty space I don't know I wouldn't want to have a picnic here but it, it has that, that sort of a tomb feeling yeah like yeah. it's a graveyard giant graveyard with one with one grave or no graves yeah but it doesn't it has that that somberness like it's not like Central Park where there are people playing there's people strolling around you know, it's just sort of empty well, and I mean, quiet. Well, it makes you think, I mean, you know, why do people go to the pyramids? Why do people go to uh, the Lincoln Memorial? I mean, it's not a place of use. It's not where you buy and sell hot dogs necessarily. Um, it's not, neither is it an empty plaza or a uh, highway. I mean, it's something different. And New York doesn't have a lot of things like this. I mean, if you give me some time, I'll probably come up with some other models. But yeah, it's very... Um, it's, meant, it's a place meant for you to experience. It's a place where the formal qualities of air and space and distance 
and height are meant to work on you and um, in a very individual way. It's not about you acting. It's about the place working on you. I mean, it's similar to going to an art museum. You know, you, you don't go in an art museum to picnic. You're there to look at something and hopefully think about it and be changed by it. And I mean, you know, God knows cities have been destroyed by um, architects thinking of it as a work of art that they have to impose and bring order to. But I mean, well, I didn't mean that as a value judgment. I was just right. thinking as we're saying, it's it's different from other places in New York. It feels more like Washington or exactly, you know, where there's a lot of this kind of stuff, and there's almost none of it in this city. It's interesting the contrast. Yeah. yeah. Grant's tomb maybe is the only other, but even that people use the plaza. And it's literally a tomb, yeah. (laughs) Unlike other monuments, there are almost no sculptures or public art of any kind, per se, with one very notable exception. It's this huge, long isosceles triangle. Yeah. And the point of it is this giant head Hmm. of a man. There's kind of a big brother... I don't know. It's a little creepy. Like It is just... a little cre- It's this sort of floating, disembodied, severed head of FDR. Yeah, I mean, it does look like someone just chopped off his neck and, is, uh, and it's being elevated in front of us. You know, I mean, I don't know. It, it probably, the, the other times I've seen it, it seemed uh, seem a little more innocuous. But looking at straight at it now, it's a little disconcerting. But as we go towards it, as you start seeing the expression on his face, I think maybe it'll he'll seem less big brotherish, hopefully. But yeah, it's true. I mean, if you think that FDR represents the sort of Orwellian nightmare of state socialism, this might not reassure you seeing this great Oz figure in front of you, right? Well, we're standing right in front, nose to nose, to kind of looking up his nostrils, looking up the nostrils of FDR, and um, you know he's not looking down like Lincoln, um, apprehensively, uh, worriedly, or pondering great existential mysteries. I mean, FDR is looking ahead. There's a bit of a pensive, but maybe a little bit of a smile beginning to form on him, and he's looking uh, away back towards the rest of the island. Think, and it seems like he's looking backward in a sense. I mean, this whole thing is, emphas- you know, we're on the sort of the prow of the ship. The whole island is converging here. But he's not looking out towards where people are going. Uh, he's looking to where they're coming from. And I don't know, part of the optimistic side of me is like, he's saying, I mean, this isn't about me. Like, you guys enjoy this. You know, the future's for you. I'm looking back. I'm seeing all the things that I've accomplished. And, you know, the best is yet to come. (laughs) He's also looking back at the ruins of that typhoid hospital. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, thinking about, you know, the old life. I mean, you look at when he was born, 1882. The czars in Russia, the Brooklyn Bridge hasn't yet been finished, you know we are as Victorian as Victorian can get. And you end with 1945. You know, the the nuclear weapons are being tested. Um, Automobiles. I mean, life for Americans changed much more dramatically between the late 19th and mid-20th century, much more dramatically than it have changed in the years following. And, uh, you know, somehow, you know, he was able to make it work. It's interesting because he's not only not looking at Manhattan... Or looking towards, you know, he's he's got blinders around him. Like he could, he can't. All he can do is look 
backwards. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you wonder what it would be like if it was a little more open. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sort of imagining this is just a frame for him, and it does sort of stress the singularity of this guy. Um, I think it would look a little weirder if it was just a blank wall and a face sticking out of the wall. Here, at least, there's a little bit of a frame. But again, I mean, this is now we're getting to the point about this the, the space we're about to enter. Yes, it's true, there's walls on either side of this sky, but there's no ceiling, right? There's only the sky. And it, the sky becomes this... I, don't, the, I mean, you pay attention to the sky so much more in, he, in this space, as you'll see, than you ever do in the rest of the city when, even though they're skyscrapers, you never really look up, you never notice the sky. But here, as we're going to see, it's totally different. So let's, let's turn the corner. never seen a public monument with less text like mm-hmm. there's all of this wall space and any other memorial I've ever seen would say would list the great accomplishments would give you biographical sketch would something the only piece of text I've seen the whole thing was Franklin Delano Roosevelt 1880 yeah. whatever to 1945 Hold on. is all these blank walls it's kind of an amazing design yeah well, I mean, all you're forced to do is really, you know, what is the connection between the space you're seeing over here yeah. and the man who we just saw? However, you're not entirely right that there's no text. Um, maybe we'll, we'll sit back here in a bit, but look behind us. Oh, right there. Yeah. I stand corrected. There's, this, there's all these blank walls, and there's just one that has this quote right now. Do you want to yes. read, it, read the quote? So this, the quote says... Uh, in the future days which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear anywhere in the world. That is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. Franklin D. Roosevelt, January 6th, 1941. I mean, this is the great challenge. You know, everyone, the only, it's the only thing you need to see, you know. Where we, you see this as you leave. I mean, when you come in, you don't notice this. When you come into this room, all you see is the city and you've seen FDR's statue. Um, and so there's all sorts of magic that could happen here. But as you leave, you see this. And it's sort of up to you. What are you going to take from this back into the world that you're about to enter? You know, it's a, it's a brilliant move to put this on the way out, you know, as the sort of challenge. But, I mean, God, who could speak those words today? Who would have... Who, who, could, who could even sarcastically finish those sentences I mean that this is the I don't know I mean it's you know as, as you'll see so many of my favorite things in New York I mean you go into Leonard Bernstein you can go to types of architecture but 
so much of them revolve around some of the ideals of this space. I mean, when you hear when it's a little less crowded in that room, um, you know, it's sort of this little capsule for this earlier optimistic, forward-looking vision of where America was going. It's this sort of artifact of an earlier time. But um, done in this way that is not at all backwards-looking or historionic. I mean, this is a very modern sort of space. And it's ironically because of that that it's so dated in some ways. We cannot go back to the old prison, the old system of mere punishment under which when a man came out of prison he was not fitted to live in our community alongside of us. We cannot go back to the old system of asylum. We cannot go back to the old lack of hospitals or the old lack of public health. We can't go back to the sweatshops of America. We can't go back to children working in factories. Those days, my friends, are gone. And there are a lot of new steps to take. It is not a question of just not going back. It is also a question of not standing still. My name is David Hoffman, and I produce this show. With me, as always, is Daniel London. New episodes of London's New York come out just about every other week. Never miss one by subscribing to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most of your other favorite podcast apps. You can find those links at racecarradio.com slash London's New York, and that's with no apostrophe before the S. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and your ideas for future shows. Please come interact with the show on Facebook and Twitter, at LNY Podcast. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.